okay, everybody? Can you hear me all right? Yeah? Perfect. Thank you. Okay, I just want to uh, say hi and thanks um, before I begin. Um, I know what you're thinking. What's he doing up there? Um, but uh, actually, this is a real honor, and um, I really appreciate this opportunity to kind of come and just share a little bit with you this morning. We're going to be talking about um, just that amazing moment after the resurrection uh, when Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, and I kind of um, was thinking about this a lot. It used to be something I actually really, I used to really love this story for different reasons, actually. I think I've been on a bit of a journey with it. Um, I think personally, I think when I think about this story now, it's more of a, it's more of a journey from, from the head, from knowledge, I guess, into relationship. And that's how I kind of view this story and makes it quite personal for me. I think, you know, in my, my personal journey um, with God, it's been a journey um, that very much mirrors that, I think, from, from knowledge from knowledge into, re into relationship. So, um, first of all, I'd just like to say thanks very much, Steph, for being so charming and funny because there's no pressure on me now. <laughs> um, I, can, I can just go straight to the, straight to the contact, content. Um, but yeah, so I'd just like us to bow our heads just for a second um, while I, I, I just open in prayer. Um, Father, thank you so much for this opportunity um, to come together in your name this morning. And I just pray for all of us here gathered that, um, that you would speak to us. You would speak to us through your word and in your spirit, Lord. And Father, I just pray that you will help me to overcome the nerves and the emotion of this. Um, and that we will all go on a journey and that you will be on that journey with us, Father. Amen. Um, yeah, so the story, the story is, the, is, the, is the road to, road to Emmaus, and it comes from the Gospel of Luke, um, chapter 24, uh, and that's verses 13 to 35. And I don't know if you know this story, but what happened on Easter Sunday morning, um, we've been talking about it already. Um, last week, as Paul, as Paul went through the story of the women finding the tomb empty and running back to tell the disciples. Um, but there's a lot of gloom around, and um, there's a lot of confusion. And these two disciples, and some scholars think that they might have been a uh, husband and wife, actually. Um, one of them, only one of them is named, which kind of might make you think that maybe one of them's female. It's hard to say. Um, but they're obviously um, really disillusioned, and they're really not really knowing what to do, actually. So they, they, they leave Jerusalem and, uh, and kind of kind of confusion and despair and sadness. Um, so along the way, Jesus kind of comes along alongside them, but they don't actually recognize him. And uh, he begins to open up the scriptures to them and talk to them about how this, this had to happen in order for him to enter his glory. He had to die. He had to suffer. And all of this was prophesied um, in the scriptures, what we call our Old Testament. Um, they don't really know that it's Jesus until they reach Emmaus and he comes in and eats with them and then their eyes are opened and they immediately realize that they've been they've met Jesus and he has risen that the stories and the rumors are true and they immediately get up in the evening it's nighttime they've come seven miles out to Emmaus and they rush back um, to Jerusalem to tell everyone that it's true so 
I mean, that's essentially the story. When I, when I sat down yesterday um, to write this out, it's not like I was kind of just thinking about it yesterday. I've, when I kind of was putting this together, it was in my head for a really long time. So it's like thoughts and ideas of which, which way I wanted to kind of take this. Um, but when I sat down, I kind of, the first thing I thought, I was really, really conscious that this is a story of, of hope, really, that begins with a loss of hope. Um, so maybe this, this kind of gets, I think this gets quite heavy, I guess, um, because a lot of us can relate to that. I know I can, can relate to this idea of kind of losing hope and losing faith and even maybe walking in despair. Um, so this story is about despair and grief, really, and that's kind of triggering for a lot of people, so maybe, maybe just be aware of that. Um, to something else, ultimately, which is amazing, really amazing. Um, and for me, I just find this really powerful. It's just a really powerful story. I actually used to say that, uh, that this was one of my favorite passages in, in, in the Bible because of this idea, this speculation around what uh, Jesus must have been saying to the disciples on the road. Um, like, what an amazing thing it would have been for those two disciples to hear Jesus himself open up the scriptures and explain everything in it that was said about himself. Um, but, you know, as I've kind of gone on my kind of journey, my personal journey, I think maybe there's something actually, there's something else to learn, something different to learn. Um, because this is the story, essentially, of two people who've kind of felt let down, maybe badly let down by God. Um, two disciples of Jesus that were really, really not sure where to go next. Um, and no doubt, I mean, they were probably witnesses to that great hope that, was, that happened just a few days earlier when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem um, as the crowd sang out, Hosanna, which means to honor the one that saves they, they thought he was the Messiah. Um, every, everybody thought that, that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans, essentially, and save Israel. Because um, there was really no precedent for what was going on, what they were living through. There was no precedent for this. So they were largely, I would say, clueless about what that greater mission was that Jesus was on. Um, why, why were they so keen to believe that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans? Well, actually, there's kind of historical reasons for that. In the first um, book of the Bible, we actually, the, this is written centuries before, um, way back, Genesis 49, I think it is, Jacob. You know Jacob? He's the guy who, who wrestled with the angel. Um, he was eventually given the name Israel which means wrestles with God. Um, he prophesied over his, his, his 12 sons, the, which eventually became the, 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 the 12 tribes of Israel. And he prophesied over them a blessing. Um, and among these very, fair, like you would say, fairly cryptic riddles, um, the best known one concerns this royal tribe of Judah. And he said, um, way back in Genesis 49, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet, until he to him it belongs shall come, and obedience of the nations be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, 
his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. It just really sticks with me, this. Um, But this idea of the scepter staying with Judah and that royal line of Judah um, refers to this right to rule, this right to apply the law and to judge offenses and all of that. So, like, even in captivity, when they were away in Babylon, they still had their judges and all of that. Um, Because I love history, I thought I'd give you a wee history lesson as well. Um, But... uh, in AD 6 stroke 7, not long after the birth of Jesus, um, the, ki- the king, Herod, he died, and his very unpopular son, Archelaus, was dethroned, and he was banished to Vienna, believe it or not, um, and he was replaced by a Roman procurator who was called Caponius, and he then took over the right to apply the law and the judgment of over all those offenses. Um, and that meant that all the power of the Sanhedrin, the Jew- Jewish ruling council, was passed to the Romans. And ancient historians record that the Sanhedrin at that time went into the streets in sackcloth and ashes, the universal outward symbol of despair. And um, why did they do that? Well, they believed that the word of God had failed. Jacob's prophecy was wrong, and that was pretty devastating. It's it must be a very similar feeling the way the, these disciples must have felt. Um, the scepter had departed, and he to whom it belongs, the Messiah, hadn't come. But he had come, hadn't he? He was actually a little kid living up the road in Nazareth, and they didn't realize that. So why would they? They didn't know. Um, but what does it feel like for, uh, what does it feel like? I've been thinking a lot about this, what it must feel like when your reality becomes unreliable, everything you hold dear just comes crashing down. I think I've experienced that. I've had so many times where my faith has been shaken, um, where I walked away completely, um, decided that it was all rubbish. Um, It's like that feeling, you know that feeling when you're sitting in traffic and the car beside you starts moving? You know that feeling when uh, for a second you don't know if you're rolling backwards or, and you hit the brake um, it's like really disorientating because you don't know if you're moving or they're moving. There's like a wee split second where you feel a bit weightless. Um, I think it feels like that. That's how I think it feels. It, like times a hundred, that feeling of um, not knowing if you're moving or they're moving or what's going on. Um, and it's a very visceral feeling, I think. Um, and I think that's how grief can feel sometimes as well. Um, when your reality is no longer your reality, and it's quite devastating. So can I just pick up the story then um, from Luke um, chapter 24, um, starting at verse 13. It's Sunday morning, and a gloom has set in. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other uh, about everything that had happened, Jesus' death, the rumor that he was alive, all of that. Most people thought it was nonsense, wishful thinking. As they, as they talked uh, and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from, kept from recognizing him. Um, in, the Ari- in the Irish Bible, it just says himself came up and <laughs> walked along with him. Um, wh- why? Why, well, they, they were kept, why do you think they were kept from recognizing? Like, it's just a strange thing. What is God trying to teach us here? Um, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Um, 
you, you know, you ever, ever do that when you're kind of reading the Bible and see something that seems a bit strange and you go, what is that? Like, what is, what, what's going on? Well, I think what's going on here is the central part of hopefully what this talk's going to be about. I think it's really powerful what's, what God is trying to say here, um, but it does seem strange. Um, but I always think that whenever anything seems strange to us in the Bible, it's like a big sign that says, dig here because there might be treasure. Um, so think about that when you're reading the Bible. Don't just cast over that sort of stuff. Um, he, asked, he asked them, what are you discussing uh, as you walk along? Um, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? And don't you know the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus just plays along. What things, he asks, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, like more than a teacher, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, i.e. defeat the Romans, set them free. And what's more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women have amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and they told us that they'd seen a vision of angels um, who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it, just as they said, but him they did not see. It's pretty clear to me when I kind of read that, that they don't, they don't believe. I mean, they're skipping time. It's that classic flight response. When things go bad, it's like, let's get out of here. And that's what they're doing. Um, and Jesus is a bit disappointed in them. And he says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did the Messiah not have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he started to explain to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So this is the bit that always really intrigued me. It's like the greatest sermon never recorded. Jesus himself telling you what was said about him in the Bible. Um, as they approached the village to which they were going, um, Jesus continued as if he was going further, but he urged them strongly, they urged them strong, him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. Um, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And classic Jesus, he disappeared from their sight. Just disappeared. It reminded me of, like, um, Nanny McPhee. Like, you know, what she's, you know what she says? She says, when you need me, but do not want me, then I must stay. But when you, need, when, you, when you want me, but no longer need me, then I have to go. It kind of reminded me of that. Um, um, ask, ask, they asked one another, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? Um, I, I don't know if you've read the, the, the book. It, was, it came out a few years ago. It's called Grief is a thing, The Thing with Feathers. Have you ever read this? Grief is, is the thing with feathers. It's by Max Porter. It's actually one of my 
favorite books of, of recent years. Um, it was like long listed for the Booker Prize. It's an amazing little book, it's only like 100 pages long. Um, it's part Nanny McPhee, it's part Ted Hughes' The Crow. Um, it's the story of a man coming to terms with unimaginable grief, um, the loss of his wife, and him and his two sons are visited by a crow, and, and the crow is real. It's not in his imagination. It moves in, and he says he's going to stay until they no longer need him. Um, and the crow teaches him something really, really powerful about grief. It's such an amazing story um, that there's hope that gleams alongside it. All, all the way along, there's hope inside it. And the, the purpose of grief is not to quickly move past it and move, move on from it. It's to just learn something from it and take it with you, let it live with you. It's real, and the grief is part of the story, and it, and it always is going to be there to a certain extent because grief follows us through life. We all experience it. It's real and it's visceral. So the crow kind of comes to symbolize that. The crow is like grief, and it, it comes, and it says in the book, with a rich smell of decay, a sweet furry stick of just beyond edible food, moss and leather and yeast. It's like, it comes alive in the page, and it hangs around, and it pervades everything, and it's chaotic, it's elusive, and it's tricksy, and it can't be grasped or defined, but its presence comes, and it helps you understand something about life. Um, the thing is to try and find the hope within it um, because whatever else grief is, it's for the living, it's for the people who are alive. Um, the story from Luke, The Road to Emmaus, it kind of really speaks, I think, to our cultural moment where we are right now as a society. The disciples had, had lost faith and with that they had lost hope. Um, they actually say, we had hoped that he was the one. They were very downcast. A sort of melancholic aimlessness had kind of set in with them. You know, like those gray mornings in January? <laughs> How we all feel, I think. Um, when, when walking away, they're just walking away from Jerusalem, which is essentially where God was. So symbolically, they were walking away from God and walking away from where he where, where he is represented in Jerusalem. Um, they're just heading off, I think, into the unknown. And it feels like a lot to me, like a lot how our, our, our culture has drifted over the years, um, this loss of meaning. And I'm going to get very philosophical with you on this next bit. Because um, this year I read this stunning little book um, that impacted me so powerfully, and it's been on my mind ever since I read it in February. Um, it's by a secular philosopher, and it, it's called, it, he was called Bai Young Chul Han. His name is Bai Young Chul Han. Um, I think he's Korean, living in, Ameri living in Germany. Um, and his, his book's called The Burnout Society. Has anybody heard of this? It's phenomenal. It's, um, read it, just read it. It's 51 pages long. That's all it is. Um, and in it, Han says that our lives are dominated by achievement culture and the constant need for neural connections, constant stimulation, striving all the time to achieve. Um, he says that our lives are now essentially bare because they're stripped of all transcendent value. 
which is so against everything that we believe in. Lives now are stripped of all transcendent value. And more than that, there's kind of like a loss of a narrative. There's a loss of an overarching narrative. And this loss of faith, and with it, the culture he talks about of Sabbath, have led us to seek something else. This excess of positivity, um, that you can do it. If you work hard enough, you can do it. You can be what you want to be. And this leads to um, at least a burnout and an explosion of all sorts of neuropersonality disorders, pathological, pathological conditions, depression, fear. And we have no real defense against these things because unlike negative traits, they're resulting from an excess of positivity. And the fallout from it in our society is really devastating. And Han ends his short, very miserable book by declaring, life has been stripped of all transcendent value. There you are, I've just basically covered the book, you don't need to read it. Life has, been, <laughs> life has been stripped of all transcendent value. It has been reduced to the eminency of just vital functions and capacities which are maximized by all and any means that we can. The inner logic of achievement society dictates its evolution into doping society. We're all functioning on antidepressants and painkillers. That's where you need to put your investments because that's what the future looks like. Um, it's a really, really bleak ending, I think, but it, unfortunately, it, ri it rings very scarily true. Um, and and it's, it's a world of grief um, without direction that we're in. Um, and it's filled with mental illness, unhappiness, as our world led bear, I think. So where does our kind of hope lie through this grief? Well, the strange thing about that book that I was talking to you about, about the crow, grief is the thing with feathers, is that it's referencing something else. I don't know if you know this. It's actually referencing a poem by Emily Dickinson. Um, she's an American poet, and she was born in 1830. Um, and the poem is actually entitled Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Um, so I'm just going to read a wee bit of it, not all of it. Um, I don't actually read poetry, so I'll, I'll just butcher this. Hope, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. Where do we get our hope from, I guess, is what I'm trying to find here when there is none. Dickinson was influenced by Christianity, actually, and the meter of this poem, if you might recognize it, is in the style of like a hymn or a, like a gospel song. Um, grief, according to Max Porter, comes and perches in the soul like a crow, but it comes with a hope that never stops at all. Um, in Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl says, he talks about his experiences inside Auschwitz, and he concludes that those who came through it with their minds intact we're not necessarily the smartest, the best educated, the most privileged or wealthy, um, but those who had meaning in their suffering, um, those who could live for something outside of themselves and their own survival. Um, and Frankel says, without that, would die. Meaning, meaning that comes from outside of yourself, that tr transcends yourself, is very, very unpopular in this day and age. We talk about our truth and our meaning it comes from within yourself. That's the world we live in. That's why I think like 
Han's words are so necessary and why I wanted to kind of include them here today. Um, if meaning ultimately comes down to how happy and healthy and centered and successful as individuals, then our, our society can't be held together in love. Um, it becomes fractured and becomes self-centered. Now I read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and just realize how important those words are right now for us. Um, I'm reading this book, Dominical Divided, by Tim Marshall, and in it he says that the world, despite being more connected and now more than at any time in history by things like air travel and the internet and globalization, we're more divided than ever. What, what many people don't realize is that there's walls being built along borders everywhere. It's a worldwide phenomenon that has been happening without most of us even realizing it. Over a third of the world's countries have built barriers along their borders, and over half of those have been since the year 2000. And as, we, as this suspicion of the outsider grows, we end up just turning our energies inward. So our two disciples are in real danger because they've lost not just their faith, but they've lost hope. And it just makes me wonder, you know, what's going on in our world? Like, why does the suicide rate continue to rise? I mean, in the last few years, Belfast particularly, is proportionally one of the highest suicide rates in Europe. Why? Let me venture a guess. Lack of significance to something or someone outside of yourself. I work for a really large youth charity, and a big part of my role is develop in best practice around volunteering. Um, however, I was speaking in a school um, not too far from here recently about something that I really passionately believe in, um, well-being linked to volunteering. You see, I believe we've missed a point somewhere in this self-improvement drive. This achievement society that Han talks about, meditation, running, exercise, mindfulness, long walks in the woods, hills, music, alcohol, whilst extremely vital, and extremely worthwhile. They can't combat this creeping malaise, a melancholy that, steam, that stems from aimlessness. If you're only existing on living for the next round of golf or the next great lunch date, that you're sedating yourself against the real crisis um, that's just outside your peripheral vision. But you can only do that for so long, I think. Only being part of a community, a community that exists to give itself in service to one another for a reason that's greater than itself. Can you find some kind of significance? And young people need to know they're significant, not worthless. Um, there was one girl in that classroom I just wanted to share, um, and she said to me that she felt unimportant to anybody, not even her own family. I was talking to her about why she wasn't eating properly, and she was existing on a, on a diet of Red Bull and Snickers bars, and she said, sure, if something happens to me, it's only me. It doesn't affect anyone else. And I said to her, I'm sure your family would, would probably beg to differ, and she said, why? Sure, it's only, it's only me. And I, I think that's the problem, I think, right there. Individualism and low self-worth, and it's kind of like stayed with me. So I was going to talk about something, I've been sort of wrestling with adding this, but I'm not going to. I'm going to skip over it. Um, yeah. But what about that stuff that God told the disciples that was not recorded for us. This would have sorted it all, wouldn't it have? To have it all laid out for us, to have it would have saved a heck of a lot of people writing a heck of a lot of books about Jesus in the Old Testament. There's this book I, years ago I picked up called Joss McDowell's Ev Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's 740 pages long, right? In tiny biblical typeface, two columns, 
per page, and it lays out in minute detail the evidence that comes to the exact same conclusion. Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament. I was going to have to spend, I, I was going to to spend half of this talk kind of like speculating on what Jesus might have said, what parts of the Old Testament did he bring to life for him, but does, does it matter? Um, what, like, what did the disciples hear on that road to Emmaus, and why did they not recognize Jesus? I think there's like a small little clue also in the book of Luke, where Jesus is telling the story about the rich man and Lazarus. It's Luke 16, and the rich man was separated from God at death, and he was in anguish. And he begged Abraham to send Lazarus back to warn his family. He says, if someone from the dead goes back to them, they'll repent. And Abraham says, classic line, if they, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not even be convinced if someone rises from the dead. So here's Jesus risen from the dead, giving him all the knowledge of Moses and the prophets on the road to Emmaus. But ultimately, this is not the method that he uses to open up their eyes. Um, how can we be convinced since all the knowledge in the world is not going to convince us? Even the evidence of our eyes, according to Jesus, is not going not to do it. So maybe as Jesus walked along with them on that road, delivering that amazing teaching session, he just had one more final thing that he wanted to teach them. Enter into communion with Jesus. Invite him into your home. Make space for him at your table. table. Enter into relationship with him. Like verse 30 says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and he disappeared from their sight. He stayed with them until they no longer needed him at that moment. So what's our answer to what's going on in this world? Why do we feel kind of aimless? Well, Jesus is calling us into a relationship with him and with each other. That's why we do communion. We can't do this by ourselves. You need to encounter Jesus in real life. And this is what this community is all about. Like, I mean, how appropriate, uh, like a place of hope. Um, this people here, this is why myself, why my family um, care more about community now than anything else. I mean, in, in, in a moment, we're gonna offer to pray for you. Um, if you want to encounter him in relationship, then I encourage you to come forward for that because that's what we want you to know, that Jesus is alive now. He, he rose from the dead to, so that we can encounter him in real life. Let's plug into that, I think, shall we? Um, and then let's become significant to each other by loving one another and by showing that to the world outside. Jesus suffered to show us how significant we are to him. He joins us in our grief, and he shows us the hope within it through our relationship with him. The resurrection of Jesus, it's about renewal. It's about the return of hope that we can live for something other than ourselves. Verse 33 says, they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem to rejoin the group with new insight, no doubt with the words that we read in verse 26 ringing in, in their ears. Did not the Messiah have to suffer all these things and then enter his glory? It was quite a plan and it was written from the beginning of time. 